everyone, and welcome to another episode of Talking to Change, a motivational interviewing podcast. My name is Sebastian Kaplan, and I am based in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, USA. And as always, I'm joined by my good friend, Glenn Hines from Derry, Northern Ireland. Hello there, Glenn. Hello, Seb. How's things? Pretty good. We're uh, a bit kind of sunny and warm here in the winter. Survived an ice storm a couple days ago, so we're hanging in there. How about you all? We're good. Looking forward to the spring breaking out. Uh, the days are getting longer, the light's changing. We're still in COVID time, so mm-hmm. but what's fantastic is the, the vaccinations are rolling out really quickly here in Northern Ireland, and I received my first one yesterday. It's almost like they're literally injecting hope into the environment, that just mm-hmm. the possibility that this could be the thing that changes it all for all of us, and that you know another couple of them have just extended the lockdown for another month here in Northern Ireland. And the message is, look, let's just push this a little bit further so that we don't ever get back to a lockdown situation. And there is a weariness. There definitely is a weariness to how a lot of people are thinking and behaving and just feeling. And I think it's a good thing that we're getting into spring now because that in itself will be of support to our emotional, psychological health as well. Sure. I love, as always, your nice image there, injecting hope through the vaccine. Yeah, a bit of a rocky rollout here in the U.S. Lots of things are rocky here in the U.S., but anyway, we won't get into that. So why don't you orient our audience to social media platforms and ways that people can contact us? Of course. As always, on Twitter, we are at, at Change Talking. On Instagram, it's Talking to Change Podcast. On Facebook, it's Talking to Change. And for questions, feedback, Ideas for future episodes, our email address is podcast at glenhines.com. Excellent. And of course, rates and reviews are welcome. We've been getting actually recently a nice steady flow of suggestions and comments, both on our social media and directly on email. And we really do appreciate it. You know, the suggestions for episodes, we pretty much talk about every suggestion that comes through and many of them get put on our list of future topics. So we do really appreciate that. We also want to recognize a couple of people that have been very helpful and supportive for us. The first is Brian Hartzler and his team out in Seattle, Washington with the Northwest Addiction Technology Transfer Center. They've been very generous in supporting our project here, and so we want to recognize them. And Tessa Hall, as well, has been our sound editor now for probably close to a year, and uh, she's been doing great work, so we appreciate her efforts also. So with that said, we will meet our guest today, who's uh, Patrick Berthume. I hope I pronounced that okay, but well enough, maybe, Patrick? Well enough, yes. Well enough, okay. Well, I'm happy to, to learn better. I took French in high school, so I'm a bit shaky on it. So Patrick is joining us from Montreal, and we'll be talking about ethics in motivational interviewing today. Patrick, we welcome you. And and as always, we'd like to hear, before we get into the topic itself, we'd love to hear a bit about you, a bit about what you do, and what we've come to call the early MI story, how you got into MI, and, and off we go. Well, first, thank you very much for the invitation. I'm very honored to be there with you. And thank you so much, guys, for all you're doing for the world, but also for the MI community. It's really appreciated. So I'm Patrick Bertiaume. I'm a French-Canadian, live in Montreal. I'm from a little, a small town, which is the most French-speaking city in North America. So I came to Montreal as I was around eight 
18 years old and I was only be able to say uh, yes, no and uh, toaster, I think, at that time. And Montreal uh, gave me uh, the opportunity to uh, improve my English. So uh, I really appreciate the experience uh, right now. I already appreciate your indulgence of my English. And I studied in sexology and I first uh, was working on the street with sex workers to help them for mainly for uh, HIV prevention. But here in Quebec, we integrate born blood and sexual transmitted infection in the same group. So at the same time that I was working for sexual transmitted infection, I was also working for addiction prevention. And that's mainly where I start uh, learning about MI because the uh, National Public Health National Institute in Quebec asked me to develop a training to how we can approach the youth about prevention of sexual transmitted infection and also for addiction. And they asked me to put into the training a best practice. So I start uh, looking uh, for uh, the best practice, and it's where I've learned about uh, motivational interviewing. And when I first attend a conference, I so fall in love with the approach. I start to uh, try to learn to get this in my practice. I first went in Paris to get my first training. I was passionate, close to be obsessive, but it's more passionate about MI. And um, then, so I did my TNT. It was an endorsed TNT training, the new trainers in France in 2008. And I've been very lucky. When I came back of that training, I've been hired to be part of a big research for people who inject drugs, who've been randomized to see me for a one-time consultation in MI or see my colleague for more an educational consultation. And they want to look if there is any effect of motivational interview being compared to an educational consultation. So during three years, all my interviews have been uh, code and I've been supervised to making sure that I was doing uh, MI. And I'm very grateful for my supervisees uh, who really improve my practice of MI. And since that time, I uh, very into MI. Well, MI really changed my personal life, but also changed a lot of my professional life also. During the, the year after, I've been involved in many projects. I've been involved in the International Advisory Committee at that time, we called uh, IAC, and now it's a motivational interviewing across culture group. I've been on the board of the Mint during three years. There is many things that I've been involved. I translate the MIT with the group of in Switzerland. I'm very passionate about motivational interviewing. And since six years now, I decide to be a full-time trainer and supervisor. I do mainly training and supervision mostly all the time. I still have a private practice for mainly people who are struggle with addiction issues. And I came back on the board. So I'm, I'm still on the board of the Mint, but mainly because it's my passion and I'm very devoted of, of what MI brings in my life. And it's very important for me to give back. That's where and why I am there. Mm. Yeah. yeah, quite the journey you're describing from an individual who only spoke French 
and then that transition into learning English and and then being introduced to motivation interviewing as part of your your work. And as often as the case, you describe something happening that tapped into a passion or you became passionate about what you were learning. And I'm always intrigued, what was that for you? Because you actually said, MI changed my life, MI changed my personal life. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like there was something quite significant about what you discovered in motivation yeah. interviewing that has essentially changed what you do and how you do it. And, and it's such a big part of your life now. I think, first of all, it's more as a human being. It's the importance are really express the way that you understand the others, which is empathy. But am I really learned me how to be closer to a really accurate empathy, which is personally, it didn't what I learned from my training in uh, sexology. So this is the importance of empathy, the importance of autonomy, really believe in the potential of others and believe that the person have all the tools within themselves to doing the best choice that they are able to do. I remember the time that I was working on the street and really feeling the fear. I wanted so to save people and and doing so many things and always trying to resolve the problem and looking for things like this that am I really learned me to how the positive regards and really believe to others and this is some things that would say that it many really changed my life so as I said it changed my life as a as personal but also as a professional person and finally maybe with the the link that we are doing right now it's it's very being more conscious of what we say and the way that we interact with others we are not always conscious of the impact and the influence that we have to others and that's where i'm very grateful to the authors and to mi to really brings me to being more conscious i remember a few years ago i attend to a conference from uh, Eckhart tolle and the way that he described the way of seeing life i was like well this is a quite close definition of mi it's it's being conscious of the way that you interact with others so that's why i'm very grateful and i think it's one of the reasons that i'm very being passionate about ethics because more that you are conscious of the impact and the influence and the interaction you have others more you should be aware of the ethics and the way that you you influence the interaction or the discussion with others so yeah mm-hmm. it's so interesting with these conversations that we do the the truly global experience of the first of all the resonance or the connection with the empathic nature of mi and, and other elements of the mi spirit but also you didn't use the phrase the writing reflex but it's mm-hmm. a concept that we use a lot in mi yeah. and it certainly seemed to be coming up for you and something where i imagine there's there may even be like a really heightened level of urgency. You know, you're working with people who are at really high risk for a lot of negative outcomes, shall we say. And, and it seemed like MI both connected you to this, again, this sort of these empathic qualities that you probably had just naturally within you, but then also provided maybe some structure or some, some way to channel that care for others in a way that wasn't you just solving their problems, which in some ways was something you probably wanted to do, but you were able to kind of channel that energy conversationally anyway, 
to then ultimately become more helpful as a provider. And so I wonder how that kind of starts folding into your interest specifically around ethics. And and if you could tell us a little bit more about that. The way that you frame it, Sebastian, it's just bring me to the importance of doubt. And it's very funny because for some people, doubt are not seen as a good thing. And some people doubt too much and some others would gain to doubt more. But the way that MI learned me in ethics, it's just the importance to just a little bit step back and just making sure to be more conscious of what you say and, and what you, the way that you interact with others. There is many reasons that I come up to my passion about ethics. First of all, it's it just for me with the four processes which has come up with the last version of MI, I really saw the link between what for me, there are three main reasons why MI is so efficient. Uh, one of it, it's for me, it's the complex reflection. So it's it's a accurate empathy to be able to have a, a little bit step forward just to be the underline of the meaning of the person, I think, with help to be a little bit more efficient than something else, but also to be able to focus on the main uh, reason that the person come to interact you. And I think the blend of the accurate empathy and the focus and then the evocation, because that's the reason of MI, the specific thing of MI. I, for me, it's, it's quite the, the change talk and the way that we try to improve the direction of the discussion. And I think it's the this three component with, of course, the, the spirit, but those three components create the efficiency of, of MI. During the training, I have so many people who express to myself, oh, well, this is something that that's great because you put word of what I do from the last 10 years or oh, this is what I do with, uh, I practice with my family and things like this, which it's make me aware of, well, do I'm sure that my attendees really capture what it's MI? And also in which the other part to really make me going further on focusing and ethics, it's also that in supervision that when people didn't bring any tapes with client, they decide to bring some tape with their family. And where the subject that they decide to discuss, I was like, well, I don't think it's really ethical to use MI in the discussion. And it's mainly, and, and I'm very grateful for all the attendees who attend to my training to always bring some questions who make me further and really more precise the, my, my way of seeing and, and the importance of ethics. So that's the main reason that I decide to, and maybe one other thing it's some people during training said, oh, well, am I, it's a manipulation way of conversation. And I was like, well, there is some things going on because people doesn't totally understand the meaning of MI and the use of it. And that's where I really decide to improve those concepts towards it. As you're describing this, what's coming up for me is, is that by inviting us to think about the ethical considerations at different points along the helping conversation, even the decision to get into helping really just invites us to step, as you say, you step back and ask the question, why am I doing this? 
and for what purpose and what is the goal I'm trying to achieve. And what you're describing as well around the idea of using the accurate empathy and effective ethical practice is that it's taken into account the other person's experience of us doing what we're doing and do they find that helpful? Do they find that supportive? Do they find that meaningful? And trying to strike that balance between well, you may have an outcome that your organisation wants to achieve, what you've got to do is strike this balance where the person has come asking for help from you. And I suppose, again, from what you're saying with the writing reflex and my own experience of that is that how easy it will be for us to lose sight of that balance when we start just wanting to fix or make things better. And again, just even just considering that that desire to make someone well in our own image almost is itself an ethical challenge for us to reflect Mm -hmm. upon that what makes you think the way you live your life is any better than how I am currently living my life. So can you maybe go even more into that? How you help us as practitioners? What questions are you inviting us to consider or how do you want us to become more ethically conscious in our practice? I developed with the time I call it the four condition to do MI. And that's the way I, if it's okay with you, I will just introduce how I introduce it during my training. It depends if it's the momentum during the training where I will do it, or I usually introduce it just before the focusing. But I really like kind of uh, stop the training and, and ask to my attendees, there is four condition to do MI. What do you think it's the four condition of doing it? And I always said, uh, don't go too far because it could be quite simple. So I let them discuss in, in small group to think about the condition to how to fix the limit of where I can, as Terry Moyer said, to put the MI caps or not, which is kind of easy. But the first one, it's to have a target of change, which is quite a simple as a condition but I remember being a supervisor during a a group discussion and the person bring a tape of a discussion that he had with her client but but the client just discussed about how was his day uh, what he's doing during the day and she did a lot of really good reflection and most of the spirit was there but there was no target of change so it not can be mi and i've heard sometimes that only being in the spirit and having a humanistic way of being it's mi and for me that's where that personally i don't see mi just because for me it's mainly a a person-centered approach but that's the difference with mi and i've heard a lot of so with the epe the illicit provide illicit uh, way of giving information that's an illustration of mi and i I always i was like well not totally because there is no change talk there is no so so my first condition it's having a a target of change and during the training it's it's very helpful because it's helped me to really uh, make the difference between 
many ways of consultation or interaction and MI. So, so this is my first condition. The second condition, it's that the person has to be ambivalent. So for me, as I said, the first condition, it, it's quite simple. It's a target of change, but it's not only having a target of change. The person has to be in some ambivalent. And, and it's really helped me uh, with uh, the change talk because if the person on are not ambivalent, they usually naturally have a lot of change talk. So we don't really need to improve that. We, we can be there to making sure to arise more uh, the part of their discourse. And I really realize sometimes in training that people don't always keep in mind the importance of ambivalence. So for me, that's the second condition. It's the person has to be ambivalent. And before going further in the third, in my third condition, I share one of uh, which I'm very grateful about the one experience that I had when I was uh, working to help the people who are doing uh, prostitutions. And I remember uh, 19 years old, she was in some prostitution reality and she was also uh, in some drugs use reality. And, and she came to me and she said, well, I just found out that I'm pregnant and I don't know what should I do though. So do you think I should have abortion or should I keep it? And she said, what should I do? I stopped there and I asked my attendees to going back in their small group and ask them, do you think I can do MI or not with her questions? And it's fantastic how people Usually the majority of the group say, yes, you can. Am I, it's a, you're there to help others. There is a target of change. She's ambivalent, so there is no problem to do am I. And that's where I start falling into ethics. And it's very fantastic to have this discussion because, of course, for me in that situation, you cannot. It's, and it's a really good example because I remember to do with her more uh, Nikki Poi's discussion and really more doing of the pro and cons and, and let her making her own choice. And if I'm authentic with you in myself, I was more thinking to encourage her to get an abortion and say to her, well, if you want really have a kid, a baby, Maybe think first of quitting. What are you doing? Making change in your your drug. That was within me was the first tendency. But as I said, I I just mainly do equipoise and maintain uh, pro and cons and don't give my own uh, opinion on that. And she decided by herself to keep the baby. And she went back to her mother. And she went back to her hometown. And she decided to really stop everything. And I remember saw her maybe five years after with her baby and she was so happy. I was in my mind, well, if I took the, and it could be very tricky sometimes to hold your own opinion and, and way of thinking to others. And that's really good example to me. That's where it's very important to step back and really 
ask yourself, I didn't want to the responsibility of her abortion and I don't want to get any responsibility in that choice. So that was for me a really good example. And when I asked my attendees about this example, Main of my attendees are mostly to say, well, you can do MI. And it's with that example that I just realized the importance to discuss about ethics during uh, a training. And I have a lot of few others example, and I can go deeper in the subject for sure. But just to finish my four condition, but the, the fourth one, it's that we can relate to compassion. But I like speaking also to benevolent so for me compassion and benevolent it's it's quite similar and to be honest when i start uh, thinking about those conditions the the fourth one was not there and it just uh, with other example that it's make me precise that we need the fourth one which is benevolent and the way that i called maybe that third uh, condition uh, usually my attendees really like uh, be surprised it's to have a lack of neutrality, or we can call it having a professional position. But I like speaking of having a lack of neutrality. It just, the, the way that, the, for me, the way of, to balance MI, it's having a discussion towards a change to the person who are ambivalent, but the, towards a target, which as professional or as a person, I have a lack of neutrality mm -hmm. about the subject. But I have to keep myself to be neutral towards the outcomes of the discussion. So it's finding the balance between having a discussion with MI on some things that I have a lack of neutrality, but maintain a, an attitude and a way of being with others, which I'm neutral towards the outcome. And it's finding the balance between the two of it, which is not always easy, but mm. that's where I see it. Mm. Wow, Patrick, that's so much really interesting information there, both with your breakdown of the conditions, the example, really, it just hit me right away to think about it as a, an example of an ethical dilemma. I just wanted to highlight a couple other things, too. I mean, you mentioned a few times there, I guess the impression that some learners will have, and I will count myself as someone when I was first learning MI as, as someone who kind of started to believe this, that everything that I was doing was MI. I was so completely bought in and it felt like, great, this is what I can do with everyone in every context and every situation. And actually, Terry Moyers, our colleague in the Mint, who's at the University of New Mexico, she pointed it out to me in a training, actually, quite directly, as Terry often does, is it was just this wonderful way of saying, actually, what you're talking about isn't MI. You're not doing MI there. It really took me aback. And I think what I was tapping into was more so the MI spirit. I think I've come to conclude that really any conversation that I have with someone certainly professionally, maybe even personally, I could strive to uphold the elements of the MI spirit in any conversation. But we sort of cross over into the specific world of MI when we, and in the way you're breaking it down with these four conditions, if we're meeting these four conditions, then that is MI. So just doing reflective listening and just upholding the MI spirit is wonderful and is helpful and is empathic and all of those things. 
and it could lead to some outcomes that you might want to see clinically, but we, we wouldn't call it MI unless we have these conditions that you're describing. So it's really helpful to kind of have it broken down in that way. And the example you used about a discussion around abortion, another thing that I imagine would be really hard for people in that moment is abortion. And there's probably a few other specific topics that elicit really strong personal positions, either for or against and and exactly. so you're just des- you're describing this professional position right and it's is like this really in perhaps even an intense challenge in the moment to be asked this question for which you have a really strong personal position about but then having to like sort of catch it and adjust and then really settle into this decision point of is this something for which i have a professional position about or is this something that I need to maintain neutrality or this, the phrase that you were using or the word you were using was equipoise, right? The purposeful neutrality. And I guess what I was wondering to hear more about, although there's, there's so many things I would want to hear more about given what you were just saying, how do you decide what to be neutral about or not? That's why I really like using this during training because then I ask my attendees, my learners to ask them on what we can base our lack of neutrality. So so on, on what are we able to base our lack of neutrality? And then I have a lot of a great discussion with people. So I always do a list with the people's or different things on what we can base our lack of neutrality, which is our profession, our mandate, our mission, the professional role, the professional values, our professional responsibilities, our professional order, or the department or the institution that we represent, the law, the scientific data, the objective of or the goal of the intervention. There is a lot of things which on we, we can base our lack of neutrality. And one thing is I well, it surprised me, but it, I think it's the way of many area, which I have a lot of learners who said to me, well, I don't know my mandate. I don't know people coming in my office and and it's not clear why they are there. And I said, well, from my point of view, in the focus processes, we should include the, the frame of the consultation. So for me, discussion about the mandate, about the professional, about the responsibilities of others during the, the follow-up, about all those things in my perception should be included in the focusing process because it's giving the frame of the direction we are doing during the consultation. Mm. That's why, and the way that I really like to help my learners to put this during their consultation, because usually I already spoke during the training about the illicit, provide illicit model. And I asked them, how do you think you can use the EPE model to speak about the mandate, about your professional role, about all those things? And I let them create the the kind of uh, three steps of the EPE model. And I asked them to create uh, an introduction of this 
with a client of your choice. And what beautiful thing to ask the patient and said, how do you think as a sexologist, I would say to the, the, to the issue you brought it right now are, what do you think as a person who worked for this institution will, would say with what you just said right now? And taking this as an advantage to really pop up and clarify the target and the direction that we take based of our lack of neutrality, which is, I said before about the mandate, the mission or the profession, but I always... Am I make me realize that if someone come to see me in consultation without a voluntary choice or not, I have a reason to be there. And it's that reason who should be allowed to make a direction during the consultation. And for me, using that EPE and way and say, how do you think? I would say as a sexologist and hear how the client would understand my, and usually when I use it with my client, I just realized that the client knows it. They have a, usually they really have a great perception of my position or the way I should, which is legitimate my change talk focus on the direction. And for me, that's a great way to let People practice the EPE model mm. with that, but I personally re- really think that all practitioner should really have uh, taking two minutes in their consultation to really focus on the mandate or the institution. The and sometimes there is many things to clarify with the the client because the client give perception to the practitioner for different reason, mm. but which is not totally align with the mandate or the service of the institution or things like this. So it's a really good way to doing it uh, mm. from from my perception. Well, there's just so much to mine, mine down into in what you're describing. I, I just love that phrase, lack of neutrality. It's so rich in inviting us to think about what it is we do as practitioners and to recognize, you know, while we go in and we're trying to be really good human beings, trying to be helpful to our people, we are invested, most of us are invested in certain types of outcomes that we or our organization have already predetermined as being good for people. And that that lack of neutrality, just what does that mean? And as I listened to you, I just thought how seductive that those justifications can be it's evidence-based the research shows that doing this is really good for you i belong to a government-based organization and they say it's a good thing and there's this list of reasons why it justifies me having this lack of neutrality but what you're also encouraging us to recognize is just having that justification isn't in itself enough then to impose it on someone else it's how to take that position and enter into the motivational division, the, the spirit of AMI with the, in the dance, which is, yes, you are taking this position, but ethically what you've got to do is continue to fully value the other person's right to choose not to do it that way in their own lives. But what you want to do is look for opportunities where they may begin to lean into that way of thinking or that way of behaving, and you will be leaning on purpose in that conversation with them. You will be inviting certain types of change talk. You will be avoiding certain types of other language that you know may lead them t- towards sustaining their behavior. 
But it's that that ethical dance, which is look, don't be imposing your power on these on these people. You have power, but it's to be used in a very supportive way and inviting them to achieve things for themselves when it's the right time for them under the right circumstances. Wow, it's and just that's that's the reason, Glenn, and then I, then I really appreciate to encourage people to really speak, to say as a sexologist, as a nurse, as a part of a team who worked to the benefit of the children, try to let them learn how to frame that it's not based on their own person or on their own moral. That's what I really want to avoid. And one of the good examples, I remember that I trained a team of nurse to vaccination and I had a nurse who asked me the question and I said, and she said, uh, I really have a big problem because I totally not agree with vaccination. For me, it's not natural. And, and I was thinking, well, if I would be her boss and I would hear that nurse, that a mother asked the nurse and said, what should I do with the vaccination? And the nurse responds, well, you know, personally, I really don't think it's natural and if I would be the boss or the someone who hire the, the nurse, I would say, well, maybe you should looking for another job because you, you should have a lack of neutrality to promote the vaccination, if I take this example. But it's some things like this for many things. So that's one of the examples. So it's for me really important to really increase the importance to base and to frame when you discuss to base the fact that if your tendency or influence the discussion, it's based on something that it's bigger than just your own perception or your own thinking as a person or your moral issues and be more able to step back and having this, this kind of doubt before going further on subject. Mm. I love, again, that phrase, importance of doubt. Just keep questioning, just keep stepping back, keep stepping back, just checking and just checking in. And if it's okay, can I just maybe, feels like there's a, this is a natural point to explore one of two questions that were sent to us before we went on air. From One was from Ross Duncan, and he, he asked us, he just says, the use of motivational interviewing in social work practice where there's an inherent power imbalance and the autonomy and choice may have negative outcomes for children. And it's such that, that ethical dilemma that I guess that, that Ross is describing that as a social worker myself, how do I practice good motivational interviewing where I am talking to you as a parent or an adult and some of your decisions I consider to be putting a child's well-being at risk? And how do we hold those two things in the, at the same time? And how do you manage that ethically? Still, for me, it's always based on the mandate. I would be curious to ask this person who asked you the question, what is his mandate? Because if it's the mandate, it's to be in care of the protection of the children. Or For me, the ethical point of view and the focus really helps me and helps people to really, when when we have a discussion where we're going for on many directions, to bring back of the mandate and the mission, I would be curious, and maybe, Glenn, you have an example, but where the mandate or, or the mission of the social worker would be prioritized the parent health or the parent well-being instead of the children. 
I can think about right now, if I remember when I was working on the street, there was a lot of teenager who was on the street and they was in some addiction realities and all that stuff. And they came back frequently to their parents and sometimes they stole some things or they, they did some things which is not necessarily in the respect of the mothers or the parent. And I just thinking right now, if the parent came to see me in consultation and my mandate it's to taking care of the well-being of, of the parent or making sure that the parent will maintain their a low level of anxiety, maybe the choice that we will be focused on will not be necessarily on the best interest of the, the teenager. But my purpose or my, my mandate, it's to help the parent. Mm. But if the parent come to see me and I'm in the adolescent services or something like this, I will focus on how we can try to find a balance between the well-being of their parents and the well-being of the adolescents. And from my point of view, I really like to say there is a 50 shades of gray in those ethics things. For me, there is a lot of shades. It's not black or white as a decision, but for me, where we will have the best answer and, and response will be regard the the mandate that we have it's mm. it's that's our main focus but maybe uh, you have other example that is relate maybe to the question that this person asked would be different no i think you're yeah, right the, that the fact that the situation isn't isn't precise and it isn't clearly identified and that idea of 50 shades of possibility and exactly what it sounds like you're inviting ross and anyone else listening to think about is what is your purpose here? What, what have you been mandated to do? Because that's going to clarify some of what it is you're going to be doing with this person. And significantly from what you said previously is in the early stages of this conversation, you will have clarified that with this person that while, exactly. you, will be, while you will be wanting to support them with their drinking or make decisions, your priority will always be if you think that their behavior is going to be detrimental to the child, that that will continue to be a real concern for you and all your reporting processes will be contingent on, on your assessment of that so they can make an informed decision about their relationship with you, how much information they give you, what it is they're prepared to talk about, what it is they're prepared to change while they're with you. But, but uh, just to take uh, again the example of the EPE, I, I can ask this person, what do you think it will be my mandate in that follow-up? And the person will answer it. And I would say, well, what do you think of it? First, I can ask him to wear my shoes as a, as the professional. And then I, guess I can ask the person, well, you, you quite frame well my mandate. What do you think of it? What do you think I will do with this mandate during that follow-up? What would be the responsibility to you and my responsibility during that follow-up? And clarify and making transparency toward the direction that we are taking. There is no problem with that, but where am I really help me? It's to try to let the person evoke first before me taking the place to really precise or explain my mandate and all that stuff. That's for me really rich if it's coming first from the, the client instead of myself. So two things that you seem to highlight. First of all, there's this 
Well, it's really, it's part of like, I guess the evocation within the MI spirit, it's that element that is coming through as opposed to evoking change talk, because it's not really quite what you're talking about. You're, you're describing a particular part of the conversation where you are wanting to evoke from them what their ideas are or impressions are or assumptions are perhaps about what your responsibilities are given the work that you're doing. And the other thing that you're really emphasizing is the importance of being transparent throughout the conversation at many steps along the way probably at the very beginning, the first time you ever meet with this person, but then there's these other opportunities to be transparent. So if you give feedback to somebody and say, well, you know, as a nurse, so you're being transparent about your role and they already know that, but it's sort of like saying, this is who I am professionally. And therefore this is the place from which I am giving you this information or making this decision is as a nurse or as a psychologist or or a social worker or whatever. So evocation and then really being clear about the places where you can be transparent in your communication really are some of the specific tools that are, that help you uphold an ethical stance in your, in your work. Yeah. 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 And, and uh, like I said, I remember one time that when I was uh, working more in the HIV field, there is a a boy which is, was in Canada for maybe two years. It was from another country, whereas the, the reality of the country and his family, it's quite different that we are living in Canada this guy had a heterosexual encounter all his life and when he came to canada he was he had the desire to have a sexual relation with the men three months after he got the diagnostic that he had the hiv and the nurse starting to say to him well you should call your parents to say that you are homosexual and she starts really push him and really try and that's her nurse that I know that she had the feeling to practice MI and she really start asking how do you think it's important to disclose to your parents and and then all kind of like this and I remember that because I was mainly in close of the same services and the young boy came back to my office two days after and he was crying and he was devastated to in his life and that was that's where it for me it was a really good example to really put aside of which is my moral or my personal point of view and which is my mandate as a professional because for me it was really unethical to address this it's not our business you should not take this, but for sure, this nurse, if I have a talk with her, she would say, well, I think it's much better for him. And when the disclosure will be done, he will feel free. And I think when you have already HIV, you don't have to be ashamed or something else. And, and she will probably have a discourse to legitimate why she are doing it. But that's why you should have a border between what I brought up, which is from my professional point of view and what I brought and try to avoid the much as I can, what it's from my personal point of view and which has really helped me. And maybe just to take another example, when in my personal life, 
I have a good friend who come to see me and say, well, Patrick, I'm not sure if I should continue with my boyfriend. I'm, I'm very ambivalent. So I have a change target. I have the ambivalence. And in my personal life, I always taking the time to think where I have a lack of neutrality in that discussion. Because I remember when I was uh, younger, I, I would easily say, well, you know, it's not good with you. It's, you don't have any respect. And she will probably decide to split up. And three weeks after, she will be back to me and say, well, Patrick, he said that he will be really kind and he changed his life. And, and then I feel ashamed to having to, to, to took a position or on something that I should not. So even in my personal life, this ethical stand helped me to think where I have a lack of neutrality. And in this example, I have a lack of neutrality that she can have a decision which is aligned with her integrity, with her well-being. So I will try to focus less or she should or not stay within her loving relationship, but I will focus my discussion or how is it important for you to, to align your decision or on your well-being, on your integrity? And how do you do it usually? And I will focus more on that instead of mm. giving my position mm. or on something. That, that's something just to illustrate that even in our personal life, it could be helpful, helpful to think about this ethical. Because as I said in the beginning, we influence much more than we think. And for me, thinking of that ethical issues helped me really much in my professional life as a MI practitioner. But mm. in, my, in my personal life, it's really helped me also to really devise what I should going further and what I should prioritize and sh what should I put on the side. Because we have also, a, I think, a personal responsibility of the way that on those decisions when people are ambivalent or something like this. And if I want to give my advice or something like this, I could be transparent in that it's my own perception and I'm not in their shoes and very clarified, making a differences. So you can use it, this ethical point of view, even in your personal life. It seems to be very important with what you're describing there is your willingness to trust the other person that while you may have an opinion, while you may have ideas, while you may have priority or, or preference yourself, what you're also doing is recognizing what if I can create the space for them to come to this awareness for themselves within their own dialogue. So even in that example you were offering about your, your friend who was maybe considering ending a relationship, rather than specifically looking at the relationship, what you did was you went to a deeper level, almost to a value level to explore how do you work things like this out for yourself? What are the criteria you use to live a good life or how do you decide to make a, a decision that will have a lasting benefit to you when you are having moments of, of uncertainty? And it sounds like that's where you were helping them because you were trusting that other person. And it leads then to an, a, another question that, that I would like to bring up because it, it came in through Twitter on the handle Angela Fell from Angela Wigan Citizen. And her question was around the idea that of the particular challenge or doubt that she often hears when about the idea of demonstrating understanding without agreeing. You've already begun to explore, I think, that idea of coming alongside of someone 
where you can I can search and explore my understanding without necessarily agreeing with you. From what I understand, she's saying that she often hears people mm-hmm. say, well, you can't do that. You can't come alongside without agreeing. But that's some things with uh, the differences between MI2 and MI3 with the, the change from autonomy to acceptance Then I really appreciate because the, the way that in my training that I like to doing it, it's to ask, well, I first asking my attendees to say, well, what's mean acceptance for you? And and it's very hard to to explain what does it mean for people acceptance. But the way that I saw that it's more easier, it's I start asking, what's the difference for you between acceptance and tolerance? Then people in my attendees, they are very easy to make the difference between the two of it. And then I ask the people, what's the difference between acceptance and approval? For me, acceptance, it's a neutral. The main differences for me between tolerance, acceptance, and approval, that's the neutrality of acceptance. And th- that that's where, f- from my point of view, that would be my answer. It's really focus of not going to step back, to, to step aside on approval or intolerance and trying to improve and increase your way of being more neutrally as the person just speaking to you. And that's re- remain the balance that I said before, which is we have to have a lack of neutrality of, of the direction of what should I focus, but maintain the neutrality of what the person will do or will think or, or the outcome will bring up. The main answer will be uh, to inner yourself, to be focused on the acceptance. Yeah, well, maybe for, for all of us, we... I'm just thinking about some kind of internal, I don't know, a system of recognizing when we're in an accepting or when we're in acceptance or, or upholding that, I suppose. And then it's sort of crossing over into some of these other things that you're describing, right? Approval or agreement as the tweeter had put out tolerance. It's about for all of us as practitioners in whatever fields we're in, it's just to try to help try to understand, I don't know, there's just, there's must be something internally for us that we could recognize, right? To know when we're in a neutral stance, even if we have a personal position about it, like your abortion example, and maybe it's about some internal questions that we might go through, you know, again, really quickly, but what's my mandate? What's my role here? Is there a, like a natural clinical direction here? Or am I responding, if I were to encourage someone to get an abortion, for instance, what's that about? And where is that coming from? And it's going to look differently in different contexts and different roles. But yeah, the, the idea of introducing the concept of neutrality and acceptance, what you were saying, Glenn, is, is really helpful. I feel like there's so many different, just in the course of sitting here, I've been thinking about, well, what about this kind of example and this kind of example? And I think we could just go on and on, which unfortunately we can't, but I would maybe like to transition to a question that we ask our guests as we start to wind down. What sorts of things do you have on your horizon, professionally or personally that you would want to share? And it could be about MI or or perhaps not. Well, I would like to be grateful to Denise Erst, which is one of the co-author of the Motivational Interviewing Integrity Treatment for the Fidelity of, of MI. 
since I, I attend for a few of her trainings about uh, a workshop on self-exploration uh, skills, I really like the, the self-exploration scales from which is uh, scales create from Truax and Kharkov, uh, which they was a student of uh, Carl Rogers. I link it very much to the concept of vulnerability. As a good MI passionate, I really like uh, the psycholinguistic field of, uh, and I'm amazed how the word vulnerability can be here from someone as a weakness. And so the same word could have a meaning of different things. In English, you have only one word to say two things. Proud can, can be some things really fantastic. It can be some things that we, in French, we have two words for the same meaning of your word in English, which is proud. But if I'm going back to vulnerability, it can be means weak for someone and, and it could be a strength for others. And I tried for many times with since I go further in the self-exploration skills, to really be conscious of the importance for me to be open to change. You have to be open to be vulnerable. If you keep facade or a gate between who you are and others, and you want to keep in your secret field that you taking, uh, you hide yourself to taking a quill and you are not able to be vulnerable and be open to be who you are, you will, I don't think you will really have, it will be easy to change your uh, alcohol conception. But for me, it just makes me realize that for me, vulnerability, the way that I would like to promote it, it's, it's a blend of integrity, humility, dignity, and well, I, I'm not sure about uh, authenticity or be genuine, because mm. this is some things that you have the chance in English to have two words. In French, we don't have, it's only authenticity. It's if I have to translate genuine in French, it will be being true, but we don't have the proper word for genuine. I would be curious to know the level of being transparent in authenticity versus uh, genuine. Mm -hmm. In my sense, you are more transparent in genuine when you are genuine instead of, of authentic, but maybe I'm not at the place, but but for me, I, I really like to going further in that concept of vulnerability to help people. I just think that more you are able to be vulnerable with yourself, more you are able to lean on yourself. Mm -hmm. And more you are able to lean on yourself, more you, you have the ability to shine and really more align with who you are and what you would like to do. And it's very something that I really, since few months, I really start writing a lot of notes about it. And I like I said, I did a lot of link with the, the self-exploration skills and, and I really would like to create something where it will be to increase the beauty of vulnerability. There is Brené Brown and others, author who, who going in the quite in the same uh, way. So I'm very passionate about uh, the vulnerability because for me, the, the reason that we link vulnerability with weak it's mostly something's out of yourself. I mean, like in the COVID situation, 
there is some vulnerable population. So we will use vulnerability because they are the reason of their age, the reason of your health issue, but it's they are vulnerable from mm-hmm. some things outside of themselves. And I think when I speak about vulnerability it, in my meaning of dignity, humility, integrity, and, and genuineness, it's more toward inner yourself, within yourself or inner yourself. So, so that's where I'm making the differences in vulnerability between weak and strength. It's mainly when, when we speaking about something uh, within ourselves, it should be something framed as a strength. And when we're speaking about vulnerability from some things out of, of ourselves, I, I can understand the meaning of weakness, but that's the small portion of my obsession towards this word, which is for me fantastic. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And you've just opened the door that I just want to walk through. I want to spend time talking to you about it because it is so fascinating. Because what well, as I listen to you, it just sounds like. The vulnerability is is the risk of what will happen if I am myself and that the vulnerability, I am vulnerable to COVID, but that's the risk I have to take is to come out and say, I am one of these people. And the invitation is how do we create an environment where someone is experiencing risk in being themselves with us? That's the environment that we're trying to create. And then that internal relationship, how can I therefore have that relationship with myself where I can be the flawed parts of myself can be visible to the rest of me? And how can the rest of me support that so that I can then turn to myself? I can be an aid to myself. And again, fascinating conversation and it's just so interesting. And I'd love to talk to you more about it. But again, unfortunately, because of time, we have to leave it there. And I guess it it will mean that the next question I'm asking you probably will prompt some people to take you up on this offer, which is if people want to contact you after listening to this episode, can they contact you? And if they are contacting you, how would you prefer them to reach out to speak to your product? Uh, of course, I would be uh, very pleased to stay in touch and to receive any questions or contact about it. And they can write me by email to my address. It's info, I-N-F-O, at perspective, P-E-R-S-P-E-C-T-I-V-E-S-A-N-T-E dot com. So, but... I don't know. Uh, well, we'll include that in the, in the blurb and in the, on the podcast as well. Which is my website, which is uh, Perspective Santé. In, in English, it will be Health Perspective. That's my address that I'd be in touch to. So people can contact you directly by email or uh, go on to your w- website. That's fantastic. I really appreciate that, Patrick. Yeah. And, and again, just to remind people how they can contact myself and Sebastian at Change Talking on Twitter. Talking to Change podcast on Instagram, and thank you, May, for all the work that you're doing on that. That's fantastic. Talking to Change Facebook, and for any thoughts, questions, comments, or information on training that we offer, it's podcast at glennhines.com. Wonderful. Patrick, thank you. thank you so much for joining us. This has been a really fascinating conversation, and I look forward to, to talking with you more about it in the future. Thank you very much. I really appreciate this uh, time with you guys. Thank you. Thanks, Patrick. Thanks, Seb. Thanks, Merci everybody. Beaucoup. Merci beaucoup. Merci, Patrick. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, 
and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.